This will be a time for you to bear testimony from the gospel according to St. Luke in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This past Tuesday, late in the evening, indeed even into Wednesday morning, many in the religious right took a great sigh of relief. I am quite certain that many believed that a great crisis had been averted or avoided. Others remained convinced that no matter what the result of the election, this nation stands in a whole heaping stink of trouble. And in addition, a great number are convinced that the result itself is a, cause for, is a cause for fear and sadness, believing the, end, the result of the election to be a frightening exp- exposition of this nation's hatred, misogyny, and xenophobia. Much of the response has been, to use the biblical language, apocalyptic. If you don't believe me, this week a rap duo released a single dedicated to everyone who is hurting right now, including the lyrics... Drink water, smoke blunt, clean off my Kalishnikov. How that is supposed to help precisely, I don't know. The Daily Show ran a segment in which they flashed forward four years from this week. Trevor Noah saying, picture the worst thing you can think of. His words flashed on the screen of apocalyptic apocalyptic images. Not that bad, but it's close. Now, with only a few days left, President Trump is confident he can secure a second term. And he says, I've come out of hiding to broadcast one more episode. I know I'm taking a risk. I'm taking my life and yours by broadcasting this show. But with the election just days away, it's worth risk-taking, people. It's almost like that weird scene in Back to the Future 2. As one writer began a column Tuesday before the results started to even come in, saying, have you heard? It's the apocalypse. Again. This idea seemed to be something which the right and the left could get behind. If there was one thing, it was this. Some Christians could be heard saying things like this. All the signs of God's judgment of a nation or a civilization seem to be upon us. And those on the left even employed fear-mongering that nuclear war would be upon us. Well, that's nothing new. In 1964, Lyndon Johnson's campaign released a TV ad entitled Daisy. Does anyone remember that? Where a little girl counts the petals on a daisy before being interrupted by a nuclear blast from behind her. One writer has it figured out, I think. Alyssa Wilkinson wrote this past week, Today we imagine the apocalypse differently. We've swapped ourselves into the position of apocalypse enactor. We have science and scholarship and technology, all of which let us understand and manipulate our environment with previously unthinkable powers. We can cure disease, beam a message around the globe in seconds, walk on the moon, see the invisible. Our destinies are in our hands, and that control is so broad, so unprecedented, that apocalypse is within our grasp. You and I, she says, have become gods, but that has come with a price. Now we can bring about the end. We are the authors of our own destruction. And you can see this in the apocalyptic rhetoric around elections from LBJ to Reagan to indeed Donald Trump. We bring on the apocalypse. We have that power. 
And the thing about these fears which we have is that they might very well be supremely reasonable. Indeed, they've been faced in every age. Every Christian's believed they're at the end. You know why? Because they're at the end. The Lord Jesus was met with similar fears and predictions. How will the temple be destroyed? How will we know that the end has come? And his response is something we very much need to hear today. He says, take heed that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for this must first take place but the end will not be all at once. So though it can be appealing to think that we have brought about the end by the simple exercise of our voting rights, we must resist the urge. Instead, it is a time, as Jesus says to those disciples, to bear witness, to bear testimony. But this morning, I want to challenge not our fears, but our assumptions about our place as the church in this topsy-turvy world. When the temple came crashing down in 70 AD, it was a crisis for many. Many Jews holed up in a besieged Jerusalem to their very deaths to defend the temple. Even some Christians. But for the majority of Christians who believe themselves to be the continuation of the incarnate body of Christ, there could be no such fears, for that incarnate Christ had been crucified and indeed gloriously risen. The entire letter, of the he- letter to the Hebrews speaks of hope in the realities of the priestly ministry and living body of Christ and of his church. Christians through the centuries have lived under the conviction that no matter how tumultuous, no matter how topsy-turvy the world of politics or indeed of anything else like the plague even, can get, no matter how much hate can be spewed, no matter how ridiculous and dystopian our world can get, as people who cling to the cross, who cling to our redemption, we cannot be moved. That is not to say that we should become casual observers of politics, but rather that we must practice a certain level of detachment. For some, this will come at a great cost, We must practice what some might call mortification when it comes to the observance of cultural and political upheaval, primarily as a means to preserve a constant and unwavering witness to the hope that is in us. Not that the world will ultimately get better or worse, but that in Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself. The Carthusian monks have a wonderful motto, It's stat crux dum volvitor orbis. Or for those of you who don't speak Latin, the cross is steady while the world is turning. This is not to espouse a kind of stoicism in the face of upheaval, however. That will never do. To simply say ho, hum, and whistle while the world dies. The call is instead to consider the proper end of all things. Namely, redemption, redemption in Christ, and remain steadfastly committed to the Lord and to his church, against whom the gates of hell cannot and will not prevail. Indeed, the presupposition of all of Scripture 
And Jesus in today's gospel reading is that the church will not take a defensive position, but an offensive position. We ought not think of those who appear before emperors and kings as those who are in a position of defending themselves, but just as Paul did before Caesar, as in a position of ringing up the score on the gates of hell. Of making a prophetic and principled stand before governors and kings, not claiming divine power for ourselves, but rather being all that we truly are as the church, the living body and bride of Christ, the inheritor of all things. In other words, do we live as if danger and fearsome trials are inevitable, or as though the church herself were inevitable? We need to recover this very important theological point made about creation that the church fathers knew which is that creation's ultimate destiny is to be the arena of the church's life and worship, taking over more and more territory as time goes on. Beloved, this world sincerely wants to know where our priorities are. Are we more concerned with political power or with holiness of life? Are we more concerned that we will suffer calamity after calamity after calamity until the whole thing comes crashing down or with making a courageous witness? The truth of it is that most in our society haven't the faintest clue what Christians believe and why. You certainly can't fault them. Christian witness has been dulled by the illusions of power. No, today is a day in which, we can bear, in which we can hear the words of the Lord to his disciples. This will be a time for you to bear testimony. And this is not simply a testimony of words, but the testimony as what it is in the Greek. Martyrdom. A witness to the gospel with our own lives and indeed we, even with our own blood. G.K. Chesterton once spoke of of martyr saints as a medicine for this world. He writes, the saint is a medicine because he is an antidote. Indeed, that is why the saint is often a martyr. He is mistaken for a poison because he is an antidote. He will generally be found restoring the world to sanity by exaggerating the world, whatever the world neglects which is by no means always the same element in every age. Yet each generation seeks its saint by instinct. And he is not what people want, but rather what the people need. Therefore, it is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saint who contradicts it the most. Listen to that again. Therefore, it is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saint who contradicts it the most. Are you happy to be a person of contradiction? Are you happy to be a saint constantly contradicting? Because you might very well die for it. You'll certainly be mortified. (laughs) Because that is the call. To be martyrs of contradiction. Saints who shine forth not because they are what the world expects, but because they are strange and odd. 
And by being strange and odd, they become a salve to the present age. That is what it means to be the church, carrying forth the incarnate Christ who himself is the salve of this world, who himself was called odd, who himself was mocked and derided as strange and foreign. That is what it means to be the incarnate body of Christ in every age, and it is almost certainly, absolutely certainly, what it means today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.